Thank you for tuning into this sermon from New Life Student Ministries. Our goal is to inspire, equip, and support our students and families with biblically rich and God-centered teaching. These messages are meant to be supplemental and not substitutional for our weekly gathering. We hope this sermon is a blessing to you and your spiritual walk. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Oh, yeah, we still got to work on responses in here. Hey, do I have any creative people in the house? Creative people in the house. I see you. I see you. Um, hey, the video you just saw there, um, we have Briggs, um, we got Nikos, we got Callie Boyd, we got our creative team in the back there. If you all look back, there's like a little blue kind of poster there and kind of a cool fancy smancy table. Hey, if you, are, if you are somebody who's passionate about film, you're passionate about photography, you're you're just passionate about getting creative. Um, there is a place for you in the body of Christ. We would love, love, love um, to get some of you guys trained up to be part of the creative team here at New Life Church. Um, furthermore than that, um, we have, I don't, I don't know if you know if you realize this, and this team goes unnoticed so regularly. But the people who are back in that tech booth every single week, we have our sound team, we have our video and like slide team, and we have Scott LeBone, like the lighting team who come and serve you every week. So first off, can you show them love? There probably aren't, um, there probably isn't like anybody else in this church who puts more work uh, into getting services ready and leading you in worship leading you, with, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but the first impression anybody has of a church when they walk into a sanctuary is, man, what do the lights look like? What, what are we communicating through the lights? Like this team back here leads us so well in that. So if you are interested in plugging in with creative, if you're, if you're interested in like wanting to learn how to run audio, do, do work the computer for like slides and things like that, or run a lighting board, we would love to connect with you. Um, that being said, if you have your Bibles, Judges chapter 9, I want you to go ahead and turn there. If you have a notebook with you, I want you to go ahead and open it up. There's going to be some things I want you to take some notes on tonight. It's a very practical message. Um, and the God statement this evening, what we're going to talk about is the title of this series, God is King. Let me hear you say it. One more time, God is King. God is king. If you can remember back to the first week in this series, five weeks ago, we kind of set the precedent for what this book is about. And we kind of see it in Judges 17, verse 6, where the author says, And in those days there was no king of, in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so this book, if you've been following with us week after week after week, has kind of showed you what happens when a society, when a people will begin to operate with doing what they think is best in their own eyes. The only product that can come of that is chaos. And so what we see God doing throughout this book is we kind of we see Israel make a whole ton of mistakes. They begin to, to slip into sin, idolatry. They, they embrace their own sin. God puts them into slavery. They hit the point of sorrow. They cry out. God raises up a judge and delivers them. And so far we've talked about Othniel, we've talked about Ehud, we've talked about Deborah and Barak, and we've talked about Gideon last week. This week we kind of see judges take a little bit of a turn. Right after the story of Gideon, we have the story of Abimelech. 
And this is the son of Gideon, and you're going to see Gideon's name in here as Jeroboam. But we kind of see the first time an Israelite go after taking things into their own hands and trying to appoint themselves as the judge, deliverer, or a leader of Israel. And God wants nothing to do with it. So that being said, this this story kind of covers all of chapter 9, and there's 57 verses in chapter 9. So I'm going to read the first six. I'm going to story tell what takes place on the in-between and give you the final part. Judges 9, starting in verse 1, it says this. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one ruler, or that one rule over you? Remember also, I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relative spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and all at Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. So this is what we have taking place. We have the son of Gideon, all right? And he's not the son of Gideon's wife. He's the son of Gideon's maidservant. He goes to all of his mother's relatives at Shechem and he says, what would be better for you? You tried to make my dad king. He said no. What would be better if all 70 of his sons ruled you or if just one ruled you, namely me? And so they said, you know what, makes sense. They give him 70 pieces of silver. He hires up some bad dudes and he goes back to his father's house, Gideon's house, and he kills all 70 of his brothers. On a single, I know, savage, so salty, right? Kills all 70 of his brothers and the youngest of them hides himself. He realizes what's going on. And as you continue in chapter nine, his younger brother, Jotham, runs out and you find himself kind of reaching out and screaming out to all the leaders of Shechem and he kind of begins to give them this parable. And it kind of, it's kind of a little confusing. He goes, look, if, if, if you had all the trees come out and they cried out, you know, to the olive tree, hey, rule over us, the olive tree would say no. And if you had all the trees come out and cry out to the fig tree to rule over us, the fig tree would say no. And if you had all the trees come out to, you know, a vine and say, hey, rule over us, the vine would say no. And so maybe their last option would be a bramble, which is kind of the idea of a thorn bush. And they came and said, hey, rule over us. The bramble would say, okay, but it will be ultimately for your destruction. And so the younger brother, Jotham, he looks at the leaders of Shechem and he said, this is what you have done by anointing Abimelech as your king. And as the chapter continues, it begins to tell us that Abimelech was king over Israel for three years. And then out of nowhere, God begins to send an evil spirit that begins to cause division between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And so they begin to get bitter with one another. And they they, they begin to kind of say, you know, we we, we do not like you as your king, our king. We want something else. And so we kind of see things escalate to where Abimelech then comes to ambush Shechem. They kind of war for a bit. 
And then it gets to the point where Abimelech ambushes all their people. He gets it to kind of the center of town into a tower where you have a thousand men and women who lock themselves in and they're, 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 they're kind of at this standstill. And so Abimelech does a very savage thing again. He goes and he cuts up some wood. He has his men do the same and he surrounds the tower, puts wood around the tower and lights it on fire and kills all of them. And then he doesn't want to stop there. We pick up in verse 50. Verse 50, he goes to Thebes. It says this, we'll put it on the screen. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. And there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower and Abimelech came up to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. So he's about to do the exact same thing to the leaders of this city. Verse 53, and a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Yeah. What is it with women and like hitting men in the head in judges? Yeah, we can clap for that. Yeah. But it gets better. He doesn't die. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed me. <laughs> and his, his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, to which all God's people said. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we welcome your spirit here. Um, Lord, more than anything, we want to see you. We want to receive from you. Um, Lord, and, and on our own, we cannot sit here and read this story and go, what is going on about your character and nature? We don't want to speculate. We want your Holy Spirit to teach us. So, Father, I pray that you would come and you would minister to us here in this time. Would you have your way? I pray that in some small ways tonight, you might show us what it looks like to surrender our lives to you and let you shape the way we live our lives. Let us be men, let us be women who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you're with me tonight, can you say amen? Amen. There's something about being a king. Everyone wants to be king. Everyone wants to be king. We have this moment in Israel. There is no king in Israel. Everyone's doing what's right by their own eyes. We have this immaculate moment with, with Gideon, this judge, who takes 300 men to defeat 120,000 Midianites. And Israel goes, you know what, you should be our king. He goes, no, I'm not interested in it. But his son goes, yeah, I would love that. He wants to be king. And if we're honest with ourselves, like we could take a step back and though we're not living in this biblical timeline, there's something about the idea we attach with being a king. A king has power. A king is revered. A king's word goes out and is accomplished. 
There's something kind of precious about being here. You can look at the biblical narrative going all the way back to the garden, the very root reality of, of Adam and Eve wanting to take of the fruit was so that they could be like their God, their king, supreme, preeminent, above all things. But you know, there's something about being a king still today in our culture, in the greatest Disney movie of all time that was released in 1994, the year I was born, by the way, we get this, we get this incredible story about a lion named Simba, right? And we watch like Simba as an adolescent and he's kind of doing his thing and he's like, you know what, when I'm king, like life is going to be different. And you kind of got like the law in his life, Zazu, who's going, no, it'll never be that way. And then we get this just iconic Disney song. And I just can't wait to be. You know it. You know what I mean? Like there's, ooh, yeah. We're going to have to do like some musical sometime. Like there's something about being a king. We like the idea of it. When we think of the word king, we think of one with power. We think of one with control. We think of one with pride. And if it is anything short of Jesus, we see that the root of all sin comes from pride. The root of all sin comes from pride. If we've kind of learned anything from looking at the history of humanity, we know that apart from Jesus, power corrupts. And those who try to claim absolute power in many ways become absolutely corrupted. When we're given a position of having authority over other people or, or, or having a position that gives a platform of influence, more often than not, humans are guilty of taking advantage of it. There's something about pride. Something that, about pride that we see play into Abimelech's story where you know what, just being the son of Gideon just being of the tribe of Israel, the people of God, was not enough. He needed to be king. He embraced his pride. I want to talk to you a little bit tonight about pride. I think pride is the root of all sin. All sin. Again, it takes us back to the garden. We have God give this one command. Do not eat of the, tr the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you do, you will surely die. And we, we see the enemy come in the form of a serpent. And he looks at the woman and he goes, did God really tell you that you would surely die? He goes, no. God knows that if you were to take the fruit, you won't die, but you will become like him. He sows this little seed of pride. I don't want to suggest to you, and what I want to talk about tonight is what kind of fruit does pride bear in our lives? We saw the fruit that it bore for Abimelech, divided Israel, tried to take over oppression, drove him to the point of murdering his own family, murdering a thousand men and women in Shechem, and made it to where he had to make his armor bearer kill him so that it would be known he wasn't killed by a woman. Like, what happens when we let pride captivate our lives? I want to suggest Seven somewhat symptoms of pride to you tonight that I kind of stole from um, a theologian and a scholar, Jonathan Edwards. 
from an essay that he wrote, Undetected Pride. Seven, seven kind of symptoms of pride that we can obviously see in Israel's life, but I want you to take a step back. And as we go through these seven kind of symptoms, I want you to take a moment of just self-reflection. And I genuinely believe this is not a matter of, is this pride in your life? It's a matter of where is the pride in your life? So I want you to take just 10, 15 minutes here, some self-reflection, as, as we kind of identify, hey, where does pride rear its ugly head in our lives today? Number one is this, fault finding. Fault finding. If you're taking notes, I want you to follow with me. A symptom of pride while we like to filter out the evil of our own lives, we actually are proactively looking at filtering out the goodness of God in other people's lives. In other words, you are quick to see what is wrong with somebody else and you are slow to see what is wrong with yourself. We see Jesus address this, don't we, in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, verse 3 through 5, you can put it on the screen. Jesus says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. There are two things that are for certain in this room and it's not death and taxes. Two things that are certain in this room the person and the people sitting on your left, your right, in front of you, behind you, those people are broken and sinful. That is for sure. And what else is for sure is so are you. So are you. And until you come to terms with that reality, you will struggle with this symptom of pride. You are just as broken as your brother, as your sister. And life's a lot easier and in sometimes we can even say it's, it's a bit more enjoyable to find the faults of others than to look at the faults of ourself. But the kingdom way is the exact opposite. Jesus says, no, 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 before you begin to evaluate and identify the brokenness in your brother or sister's life, realize the gravity of the brokenness that's in your own life and walk with them in the reality of your own brokenness. That's what it means to walk with Jesus, to walk with Jesus. The symptom of pride that rears itself in our lives is fault finding. We look for the faults of others and we try to sift out God's goodness in the lives of the people around us. Symptom number two, a harsh spirit. People with pride in their hearts speak of others' brokenness with contempt, irritation, frustration, and judgment. You know, this is usually the primary reason people walk away from the church. is because they came to a place where people were not known by their love for one another. But they came to a place and they experienced a harsh spirit. They experienced a very real reality that they are broken and that clearly there are others who think that they have got life better put together than them. You know what that does when we have a harsh spirit? Is we cease to let people be human. 
with us. You cease to let somebody be who God has created them to be and be someone who is in need of God's grace just as much as you are. This is what a harsh spirit does. Pride will rear its ugly head when we seek to find faults in others rather than looking at ourselves and by having a harsh spirit, treating others with contempt, irritation, frustration, and judgment. We don't let people have permission to be human. Third symptom of pride is superficiality. Let me explain what I mean by this. It is prideful to go anywhere, your home, your school, your church, and work to wear a artificial mask about the way your life looks. You begin to try to cover your own brokenness. You come to church and instead of being real with what's going on in your life, instead of being real about your doubts, instead of being real about your sin, you work very, very, very hard to show the world that you have your life put together. You hide your vulnerability. And I'm here to tell you that's a symptom of pride. This also goes back to the garden, doesn't it? Adam and Eve, they take of the fruit and they eat. And what's the first thing that happens? Genesis 3, verse 7 and 8, I'll show you. They ate of the fruit and then it says, Then the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I want you to take notice of something here. They're not hiding their brokenness. Their nakedness is not their brokenness. God made them that way. What they're hiding is their vulnerability. They're hiding their vulnerability. There's something about pride that fights so very hard to show the world our brokenness. Can I have like a pastoral moment with you right here just for a second? For your generation, Gen Z, uh, bottom side of Gen Z, whatever next generation is coming up. Can I give you a caution here? I'm not here to tell you social media is the devil. But my goodness, the devil rears his ugly head all the time on social media. And social media has become a very easy place to do this. How many of you have ever seen Jumanji? Like the new Jumanji. Yeah, it's a good movie. You know the beginning of the movie where they're kind of like going through the four kids. And you got, you got just that high school girl named Bethany. And it's like 7.30 in her room and she's like laying there. She's got her selfie stick out and she's like laying down. And it's like, it's like she's got her cup of coffee there and there might be like a journal there. If you're like a follower of Jesus, sometimes you got your Bible there. And, you know, sometimes your mug will say, you know, like the Lord has good plans for me and Shabbat. And all of a sudden then it's like you take the picture, she posts it online. It's like, ha, oh, mornings, hashtag no filter. Yeah. 
Y'all, I've been married to a woman for almost six years. And she is the most beautiful thing on planet Earth. But the mornings don't look like that. <laughs> the mornings don't look, and let me be clear, they don't look like that for the husband either. They are filled with bad breath, ugly hair, and droopy eyes. It's seven o'clock in the morning is not the time my wife wants a picture taken of her, nor do I. And yet, this is our world, right? Let's show the world the highlights of our life. Let's show the world where we've got life together. Social media is an easy place for it, but I'll tell you what, I think I probably see it even more so at church. This has become a place where we've gotten so good at, at putting a mask on, at, at putting metaphorical fig leaves over our vulnerability that all of a sudden we work so hard to cover who we are that we begin to forget who we are. And I need you to hear me say, that's pride. That's pride. Trying to wear a mask and trying to show the world your parents, you got life together. Trying to show school, you got life together. Trying to show the church. You, you guys want to know why we have such a high suicide rate in our city? Is we have lay, lay, laid hold to this pride. We've refused to tell the world that we're in need of a savior. And so we fight to show the world that we're saving ourselves. And it's a facade that has to be kept up. And you know what it does? It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Superficiality. Pride rears its head. Number four, defensiveness. Ooh, a prideful heart cannot be wrong. It cringes at the idea of rebuke, correction, criticism. I promise you, you will know this in the first three years of marriage. The first three years, my wife will go, first three years. She's like, it's still going on today. The fight to be right is real. We see this in our country, don't we? Nobody likes to be wrong. Nobody likes to admit that they're wrong. So what does a prideful heart do? It begins to defend. It begins to defer responsibility. Instead of owning I messed up. Instead of owning, I'm broken. Instead of owning, I'm sinful. It's, well, my parents raised me that way. My parents didn't treat me well enough. Society doesn't treat me well enough. And so what we do is we begin to justify our brokenness, our sin, by saying it, it's not our fault. Now, I want you to hear me tonight. I am not disclaiming that you don't operate in pain because people have hurt you. That is the case, absolutely. But don't justify putting pain on other people and not own responsibility for it. A prideful heart is, is quick to defend itself, quick to say, you know what, I'm not responsible for that. Theologian and scholar Jonathan Edwards, who we got these, these symptoms from, he says this, for the humble Christian, the more the world is against him, 
the more silent and still he will be unless it is in his or her prayer closet. And there he or she will not be still. What he's saying there is if we're letting Jesus lead our lives, we can understand the world will hate us and we will be broken. Two things for certain. The person by you is broken, you're broken yourself. For sure. For sure, for sure. But we understand that the one who vindicates God's people is not ourselves. It's God himself. Are you with me? Where we can take the anger, the rage, the frustration is the safest place on earth. The presence of God. The presence of God. A prideful person is defensive. Symptom number five, false humility. I know you're sitting here and all my wits in the room are going, no, duh. Pride is, false humility is pride in and of itself. But I'm, I'm going to be a little bit more specific here. I'm talking about before the Lord. I'm talking about my followers of Jesus in here. Humility approaches God with two things. Being humble and having assurance. Or let me say it maybe this way. We are to have two things when we go before the Lord. Reverence and confidence. Reverence and confidence. And here's, here's where pride can rear itself. You begin to, to treat God as if he is not God. As if you are not coming in prayer to the Alpha the omega, the beginning and the end. And all of a sudden, the way you begin to engage with God treats him less as what he deserves. You lack reverence. But I think more often than not, what people will do is they might not necessarily lack reverence, but for followers of Jesus, will lack confidence. And so the way we approach God is almost kind of timidly, like he's ready to smite us, like he's ready to discipline us, like he's waiting on the edge of our seats to show us in some wrath-filled way why he is God and why we are not. And yet the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.16 that we should draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. With confidence. Why is it prideful to, to not draw near the throne of grace with confidence? Here's why is because if you don't have confidence, what you're saying is that God's grace is not greater than your sin. Let me say that again. I don't think you caught it. If you walk before the Lord and you lack confidence because you think he's ready to smite you, he's ready to get after you because of your brokenness, what you're saying to him is the work that you did for me and Jesus was not enough. He sent his son to die on a cross to raise again. Why? So that you, me, all those who are broken could come to him with confidence, knowing that when he looks at us, he does not see our sin. He sees his son's righteousness. To approach God any other way is false humility. And that's prideful. Number six. A desperation for attention. This is a big one. A prideful person, they always got to be the center of attention. The world's got to revolve 
around them. They'll compromise maybe discussion. They'll sit and you, I'll, I'll say they, let's, let's make it more personal. You'll sit and you'll talk with somebody. And as they are sharing their pain with you, the only thing you know to do is to take their pain and say, yeah, this is how I deal with that pain. And instead of being a good listener, you've become great at telling the world who you are as opposed to who God is. This can come in the form of all my Enneagram 2s in here of those who have to always be needed or wanted by other people. That's how you find your life is you have to be needed. You have to fill a role in the group. Have you ever heard of the term FOMO? Fear of missing out. I'm not rebuking all my extroverts in the room. I know that you like to be with people. My wife is one of them. But there's something about it crossing this line of I have to be needed, I have to be wanted because God isn't enough. And so what do we do? We become desperate for attention. Instead of making God the center of the story, we make ourselves the center of the story. And we begin to try to let our story be known as opposed to seeking to understand, as opposed to seeking to be understood. We, we lose the art of listening and become really good at speaking. We kind of lose, as James says, that ability to be quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to become angry. A prideful person is desperate for attention. And the last one here is pride rears its ugly head in the neglecting of others. Pride prefers some people over other people. Pride will say, you know what, I want to spend my time with those who I find more appealing, more attractive, more accommodating for my life. And so you begin to overlook, you begin to ignore, you begin to disregard other people. Uh, maybe it's least in intensive expression, that's what it looks like, is you just simply ignore those you don't want to talk to, you don't care about. In its worst expression, this is where racism comes from. This is where taking a systematic look at somebody else of a different color, of someone of a different class, someone of a different family, tribe, tongue, nation, sexual orientation, any above, and you say, you are beneath me. You're beneath me. And our country knows this history of what fruit comes from neglecting others. It's prideful. And pride is the root of all sin. It's the root of all sin. Now, I have spent the last 20 minutes just making you probably extremely depressed. And hopefully if you are listening by now, you've realized, oh yeah, that's me. Oh yeah, that's me. Jeez, that's me. There is good news for prideful people. There is good news for prideful people, and his name is Jesus. 
There's good news for prideful people, and his name is Jesus. You see, where a sinful, broken world will embody pride, this man, Jesus, embodies this idea of humility. Humility. There's three things that I want to just tell you about humility real quick. Number one is that humility begins with surrender. I don't want to tell you what that looks like tonight. If any of the last seven things that I just told you about, you begin to realize, oh, that's in my life. And we're here at this place of what do we do with it? And you hear the pastor say, humility is surrender. What does surrender look like? Surrender starts with confession. It starts with acknowledging where your sin has taken root and hold in your life and acknowledged Knowledge is that you are broken. Confession is the beginning of the end of pride. It's the beginning of the end of pride. It seeks to make much of Jesus and less of us. First John 1 John 1.9, the apostle says this, if we confess our sins, he, he being Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what confession does, is it puts pride at a stop. And it says, you know what? I'm gonna choose the Jesus way. Confess, this is what this kind of needs to look like. First and foremost, a confession to the Lord. That one, if not all, if it's me, it's all seven of those symptoms of pride plague my life. And I'm sorry and in need of forgiveness. And I want to live a new way. It starts there. And then it goes into your day-to-day -day relationships where you realize your pride has hurt those around you. And yes, they may have hurt you too. But hear me. A prideful person will remain in bitterness. A godly person will embrace forgiveness. And I know without a shadow of a doubt, some people need to be forgiven by the Lord in here this evening. And you need to seek forgiveness from your parents, siblings, maybe people in this room. Why? Because that's the Jesus way, humility seeks to surrender first. Number two is that humility hungers for truth. It hungers for truth. Whereas a life of pride desires to live superficially, the life of humility or the Jesus way seeks healing, restoration, and redemption. Pride seeks to glorify a lie. And here is the lie primarily, that you are ultimate, you are supreme, you are the most important thing in your life. If you continue to embrace any one of these seven symptoms, what you are saying is that, you know what, the way you view life is more ultimate, is more supreme than the way God has called you to live in the person of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul has a problem with that. Colossians 1, 17 and 18, he says this, and he, he being Jesus, is before all things. 
and in him all things hold together. And he is head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Translation, that he might be supreme. That he might be above all else in your life. That he would be your ultimate treasure in your life. That his word would be the guiding word for the way you live your life. A humble spirit will hunger for truth. And the truth is that there is nothing better than God himself. There is nothing better than God himself. There is no sin that you are wrestling with that has more power that is more preeminent, that is more supreme than the cross of Jesus Christ. None. And to believe so, to believe that you are too broken to have a relationship with Jesus, to believe that your life is too jacked up for this man Jesus to come and heal you, oh, it's pride. It's pride. And I got good news for you this final point you don't have to figure it out because humility is dependent upon God's grace it's dependent upon God's grace it's a gift to you Ephesians 2 8 and 9 the apostle Paul says for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing it is a gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. The only remedy for our pride this evening is Jesus. And I got good news for you. Jesus offers himself to you as a gift, as a gift. And so what is the invitation? What are we ultimately saying when we lay down our pride and we embrace a life of humility, a life of following Jesus? This is ultimately what it says to ourselves and to the world. God is king. God is king. He is our bottom line. He is our north Star. He is our supreme treasure. Though he was born to die, he was raised to reign. Can you stand with me? There's good news for prideful people tonight. Good news for those of us who delight in finding and identifying and calling the faults out in others and not looking at our own brokenness. There's good news for those of us who like to operate with a harsh spirit, who like to speak to those passive aggressively with intense sarcasm, who like to be quick to judge. There is good news for those of us who have walked in here tonight and who have labored so hard 
to put a mask on, to hide our true selves from the world. There is good news for those of us who live our lives defensively, for those who, who cannot admit that they are wrong, who cannot admit that they are broken. There is good news for those of us in here who are so desperate for attention because we're not getting it anywhere else. And yet we can hear that the God of the universe has given all of himself to us tonight. There is good news and there is hope for our country when we look out and we see, man, there is still so much brokenness that has come from a product of neglecting others. And yet, Jesus, he shows us a better way. So there's one thing that I wanna invite you to do tonight. Believer, non-believer, wherever you stand, the invitation is to surrender to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords. Surrender. Admit, realize that you being the supreme being of your life at its core truth is not enough. And you need a savior. And the gospel offers one, his name is Jesus. So as we come to this moment, as, as Victor and Cassidy lead us in this song of response, I want you to take this prayer upon your lips that, that will do this prayer of confession. And I want to invite you to just take a moment. If you need to find some space in the room, you can find some space in the room just to get on your knees. And I want you to surrender. And remember, where, where does surrender begin? Confessing. Confessing. This is where I've fallen short. This is where my pride has taken over in my life. God, I need you. I need you not just to show me a better way, but help me live a better way. As you leave from here, go. Surrender. Confess your pride to those you need to confess it to and ask for forgiveness. And let the life of Jesus work in and through you. So that being said, can we put the prayer of confession up, Abby? Let us say this together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. And we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let us surrender to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords. Thanks again for listening to this message from New Life Student Ministries. If you want to keep up with what's happening with us, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at NL Student Ministries.